Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Leviticus chapter 20. The Tyndale Old Testament Commentary provides an excellent introduction to this chapter. It says, This section forms a natural appendix to the contents of chapters 18 and 19, and continues the emphasis upon holiness. Whereas the two preceding chapters specify behavior positively or negatively, chapter 20 describes the punishments that will result should the ordinances be broken. That's a good way of thinking about it. It does read like an appendix. It isn't introducing any new issues. It is simply providing additional content with respect to the appropriate punishments that should be associated with the issues that have been discussed previously. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel who gives any of his children to Moloch shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. As mentioned above, in this chapter we're dealing with the appropriate punishments associated with particular sins, all of which were already mentioned in some form in chapters 18 and 19. The structure of this chapter is determined by legal considerations. It begins with crimes warranting capital punishment, and then it moves on to crimes warranting lesser, though still serious, sanctions. It begins with the sin of child sacrifice. And we should pause and notice that. We should notice that in the catalog of sins, this sin is treated as the most heinous of all. I'm thankful for that. I don't think I would want any other sin at the top of this list. And I can't think of any sin that stands in greater contrast to the character of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 19, 14. Jesus took the little children into his arms to bless them and to pray for them. Moloch, a god of the Ammonites and Canaanites, took little children into his arms to burn them. Some scholars suggest that this was the way in which child sacrifice operated in the Moloch cult. A metal statue of Moloch with his arms outstretched was heated in the fire until it burned red, at which point a drugged or incapacitated child was placed in his arms to burn and die. Such an abomination warrants a place at the very top of this list of capital crimes. I wouldn't want to worship a god that did not consider this sort of act worthy of the most severe form of punishment and sanction. Any person engaging in this sort of activity, whether he be a member of the covenant community or a stranger in the land, was to be executed by stoning. 
Execution by stoning was meant to express the rejection of the entire community. Every citizen who had a voice in the affairs of the community was expected to participate. And that sent a message to the criminal and to the community as a whole. God's people are going to worship God exclusively, carefully, joyfully, and in accordance with his revealed character. Verse 6 goes on to say, If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Further forms of occult or pagan worship are mentioned in verse 6, along with another reminder that even if such activities are not found out and properly punished by the community as a whole, the individual engaged in such acts will not escape the judgment of the Lord. In verses 4 and 5 above, God made it clear that if the community does not do their job, the individual can be sure that they have not escaped justice. All human justice is provisional. It merely foreshadows and anticipates the judgment of God. So there is no escape. In verse 6, the text refers to activities that were of a more private and clandestine nature, activities that generally would go undetected by the community at large. But the text reiterates that they therefore do not go undetected by God. You can be sure that your sins will find you out, whether in this life or the next. In verse 9, the text begins to deal with capital crimes committed within the realm of the family. The first of these mentioned is the sin of cursing one's father or mother. The fifth commandment tells us to honor father and mother, but here the text is addressing the individual who curses, who actively and aggressively dishonors father and mother. Such a person warrants death. Now, we'll talk about what to do with these punishments in the New Testament era at the end of this episode, so hold on to that question. For now, it is enough to know that God is opposed, and therefore his covenant community is opposed to these sorts of behaviors. Verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Notice here that both the man and the woman engaged in adultery were to be put to death. Understanding that helps us further understand the injustice on display in John chapter 8, where only the woman caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus. Jesus did not approve of her behavior. Rather, he declared a mistrial, given all the sinful activity and obvious injustice involved in trapping this woman and attempting to use her to embarrass him. Verse 11. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with a male, as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. 
they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. So here, incest, homosexual sex, and bestiality are all condemned as inappropriate for the elect people of God and worthy of maximum sanction. Verse 17. If a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. If a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain, and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. Both of them shall be cut off from among their people." You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. This section details a list of sexual sins that are to be dealt with seriously, though not through the administration of capital punishment. These sins include marrying someone to whom you are too closely related and ignoring the period of ritual uncleanness associated with your wife's menstrual cycle. These are serious sins, but not capital crimes. The people who engage in these sorts of sins are to be cut off from among their people. This refers to banishment. If you won't live like an Israelite, then you can't live among the Israelites. That's the basic idea here. Verse 22, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Once again, it seems like the land has been encoded with some sort of passive resistance principle. If the people engage in gross idolatry, if they engage in abhorrent sexuality, if they degrade and destroy the principles of family, then the land itself will push back hard against them. It will vomit them out, as indeed it vomited out the people who lived there before them. Now, that is not to say that God is not involved. He is bringing the Israelites now in the storyline into the land so as to displace the Canaanites. So he's active in this process, and he will later summon the Assyrians to displace the northern tribes, and he will summon the Babylonians to displace the southern tribes. So God is actively and passively opposed to these sorts of behaviors, particularly should they become associated with his covenant people. R.K. Harrison says here, God's elect people must be recognizably distinct from those who are not dedicated to the ideals of holiness, an emphasis that is equally valid for the people of the new covenant. Closed quote. Verse 27. A man or a woman who is a medium or a necromancer shall surely be put to death. 
They shall be stoned with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Some scholars feel like this is almost a footnote, that it was added at the end of the chapter, as it was realized that the death penalty was not explicitly commended for the sin of necromancy up in verse 6. There the emphasis was on God's pursuit and judgment upon the individual, but the text wants it to be clear that the community must fulfill its responsibility to punish this sin as well. That could be it. Or the arrangement could be explained by the slightly different focus. In verse 6, the focus was on the person consulting the medium, whereas here in verse 27, the focus is on the one functioning as the medium. Either way, it doesn't much matter. Everything to do with the activity is prescribed by God. It's forbidden to the people of Israel under maximum threat of sanction, which raises the issue. What do we do with all of these severe punishments in the New Testament era? As I've mentioned already, I'm planning to do a special excursus episode on the Christian and the law after this series, but we can't read this chapter profitably if we don't pause and at least begin to open up the question, what are we supposed to do with these laws and the punishments associated with these laws? Well, first of all, I think it needs to be said that whatever was out of step with God's character in the Old Testament remains out of step with his character in the New Testament because God's character does not change. So Gordon Wenham says, for example, here, adultery, incest, homosexuality, and the like are just as sinful under the new covenant as they were under the old, closed quote. He goes on to say, as New Testament Christians acknowledge the divine authority of this legislation, but recognize that it was impossible to enforce in their time, so must the modern church. Yet, we may still profit from studying these laws. They remind us that However lightly modern man regards such conduct in God's sight, it constitutes grave and serious sin meriting the severest censure, closed quote. I find that comment very helpful. New Testament Christians understood that it was impossible to enforce these laws in their time at the level of the civil community. New Testament Christians understood that a significant change had occurred. In the Old Testament, the church and the nation were one and the same. But that's not the case anymore. Now the church of Jesus Christ is growing inside every tribe, tongue, and nation on planet Earth. So we have a new situation, and so we have to do some thinking. It is clear that the apostles continued to recognize the validity of these moral principles. The Apostle Paul, for example, at the end of Romans 1, after an extended discussion of homosexuality, says... Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. That's Romans 1.23. Paul was writing to Christians living as a minority inside a culture that practiced and celebrated things that God considered an abomination. Paul doesn't say, well then, we need to get on board with that. We need to celebrate what the culture celebrates. No, he, he doesn't say that. Paul is in lockstep with the Old Testament here in terms of morality. He says that those who do such things deserve to die. That is Paul the Apostle affirming the morality and the scale of punishment being taught here in Leviticus chapter 20. But he doesn't tell the Roman Christians to run out and, and to start a petition to have the government of Rome make homosexuality a capital crime. No, he, he understood that it was impossible to enforce these laws in the present dispensation. 
So what you see in the New Testament is these same moral principles being acknowledged, but you also see them acknowledging the reality of their new situation with respect to the state. They're not in charge. There is no prospect of them being in charge. They are, they are not to attempt to be in charge. Paul doesn't tell Christians to wrestle the sword out of Caesar's hand. No, in, in Romans 13, he says, the king does not bear the sword in vain. God has given him a job to do and you a job to do in this present dispensation. So get at it. In the church age, we respect these principles, but we do not have nor do we seek to have the power of the sword. And so execution becomes excommunication. We say to the individual, you may be legally free in this society to engage in these various activities, but you are not free to call yourself a Christian while you engage in these activities. We will not vouch for your profession of faith if you carry on in these sinful acts. That's what excommunication is. We withhold the table. We withdraw membership from persistent, unrepentant sinners as a testimony to them that their behavior places them outside the church and will, if unrepented of, place them outside the eternal kingdom of God. The Apostle Paul said that too. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Closed quote. So anyone can be saved. But once you have come in and have identified with the covenant community, you must renounce a variety of practices that may be affirmed by the neighbors, but that nevertheless are not to be practiced by the people of Christ. Those who continue to engage in such practices show that they do not truly belong to Christ, and they place themselves outside the coming kingdom of God. If they persist in such activities, they may survive the judgment of lax civil authorities, or even weak-willed local churches, but they will not survive the final judgment of God. Remember, God says in this chapter that even if communities fail to do what they should do, no one engaging in these activities will escape the final and far more significant judgment of God. The book of Revelation says the same thing. Revelation 22, 14 to 15 says... Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Close quote. The theocratic kingdom of Israel foreshadows the theocratic kingdom of Christ in the eternal age. The church is an embassy of that coming kingdom. But for now, it works and lives in a foreign land. So it speaks of laws and it points to realities that it cannot at this time enact or enforce. The church must insist on the purity and consistency of its own witness, but ultimately it must point to the final judgment of God. 
No one rejecting God's authority or rebelling against his will and counsel will enter through the gates of the celestial city. Only those who have washed their robes in the blood of Christ and submitted to his yoke and rule shall be allowed inside. The coming eternal kingdom will be a place of perfect holiness, perfect obedience, perfect love, and perfect peace. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you for